Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast, where we look at the trends impacting mid-sized companies and the influencers behind their success. I'm Katie Mulligan, Associate Editor of Middle Market Growth Magazine, and I'm here with Deborah Cohen, the magazine's Editor-in-Chief. Deb, who'd you talk to for this week's podcast? Katie, I spoke with Stephen Kaplan of the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. He is a professor of entrepreneurship and finance at Booth, and he's considered a foremost authority in private equity. And you went down to University of Chicago to speak with Steve, is that right? Yes, we went down in mid-December to speak with him, and it was very timely because we were able to talk a lot about a new uh, index he developed with Lincoln International, the investment bank. And the index um, presents a tool to measure the enterprise value of uh, private middle market companies. It's going to be an important benchmarking tool for PE sponsors and institutional investors. Great. Well, Steve is certainly a, a hugely influential figure in, in private equity research, so we're thrilled to have him on the show, and, and I can't wait to, to hear what he has to say. So let's get into it. Here is Deb speaking with Steve Kaplan. Professor Steve Kaplan, thank you so much for joining me on this Middle Market Growth Conversation. You have worked with Lincoln International on a new middle market index. Can you talk about that index and its its origins? So that index started uh, at Lincoln where they have a, a business in which they value over 1,200 companies every quarter uh, for private equity investors. And uh, they do it... Um, Every quarter, they're middle market companies, they're largely portfolio companies of private equity firms, and they're doing the valuations for uh, lenders to those firms. And what they, they believed was that there was a demand for more information on those firms, and they also realized that they had pretty much the largest data set of those kind of firms in existence. And so... Uh, given that there is demand for the data and that they had you know, what they think mm-hmm. is the best data set, uh, they set out to build an index. And when they decided to do that, they, they realized, well, we're not sure how to build an index. And so they contacted me uh, and Mike Minnis, who's one of my colleagues, and said, can you help us build an index? And so we took a look at their data and uh, agreed it was probably the best mm-hmm. data out there for uh, what they want to do. And uh, we help them build the index. And how does that um, index differ from, uh, I mean, we're talking primarily about private companies, it, it, right? So it differs in a, in a few ways. So, so first of all, they have, again, they have, I think, more companies that they track quarterly uh, than anyone else. Number two, there are some other indices out there that are probably more, there are fewer companies and they're more selected in the sense that they are not, you know, a broad swath of the, mm-hmm. the economy or the firms out there. And they have a pretty unbiased sample or a non-selected sample of kind of all companies. So they have uh, most industries represented. Some of the other indices are not as good uh, on those, uh, you know, the industry distribution. And then the, the last thing that they do that's a little bit different, they actually value these companies every quarter. And the other indices, you know, they have sales, they have... Uh, earnings, but they don't necessarily have valuations. So they've got uh, they've got those. They've got measures of you know sales, um, 
earnings or EBITDA, and they also have valuations. So are the public market indices sort of a proxy for, for this um, index, or is it, is it very different? Is it kind of like apples to oranges? Well, the idea is to compare them and to understand the, the middle market firms are you know, maybe similar, maybe different. And the idea is to be able to take a look every quarter about what's happening in the middle market and see how, whether that's similar or different to what's happening in the public markets. And so I think what they've, they've found so far, and again, they only have, they have three years of, of data looking backward, and uh, each quarter going forward, they have more companies and mm-hmm. you'll have more patterns. But the, the value of the companies over the last three years, and this is enterprise value, so yes. it's, it's different from equity value. The enterprise value has gone up by less than, say, the S&P 500 or the Russell 2000 over that period. Think of enterprise value as as the value of the house, whereas equity is the value of your equity in the house. Got it. Where you've got the mortgage. So the value of the house, in this case, the enterprise value has gone up by less than the value of the equity, which you would expect in a, a market where the market's gone up and you're leveraged. And the um, the movements in the enterprise value have been somewhat less volatile than the public markets. And then if you, if you did account for that leverage, the movements in the equity values, these companies look pretty much like they moved with the public markets. Okay. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's what the results would be. And I think, you know, what'll be interesting to see going forward is whether those enterprise values track the market or not mm-hmm. and how those equity values underneath them, you know, go relative to the public market. What are some of the most interesting um, insights that have emerged thus far? I think they've only done this for a few quarters. It's just one quarter. Just one quarter. So, so okay. I think it's a little little early to say, but I think the, the, the first order insights are, you know, that the enterprise values have gone up by less than the public equity mm-hmm. markets, but that the leveraged equity has performed in line with the, the public equity okay. markets. What does the index reveal about the risk-adjusted returns of private middle market companies relative to public companies? I mean, again, I think it, it's too early to tell, mm-hmm. but o- over time you'll be able to, to compare how the, the private companies do both the enterprise value and hopefully the equity value relative to you know, how public companies do. Okay. How do you foresee the index benefiting private equity investors who haven't um, previously had access to this type of data? Well, it's it's one of these things where in private equity, because the data are private, uh, the data are historically not great. And I think that, you know, you can contrast that with the public data where, mm-hmm. you know, you can benchmark on everything, so I think private e- private equity investors, both the the, the equity investors and the creditors, uh, and then you would have you know the LPs of those uh, both equity investors and credit investors are all interested in benchmarking their performance and seeing how they're doing relative to others. So having uh, an index that is you know better yeah. than what's out there, it moves the ball forward and. So it's going to help the, I think, you know, the credit investors understand how are their portfolios doing versus other portfolios. The same thing 
uh, for the GPs. It's probably less relevant for the limited partners who are looking at the returns right. to those folks. But for the, the general partners and for the, um, well, the general partners and the equity funds and also the credit funds, I think that's where uh, it's most useful. And it's, you know, it's potentially useful, again, for um, the, the business press to understand how mm -hmm. these companies are doing, whether they're diverging at all from the public companies or whether they're performing in good, a similar way. Good for diligence on the front end, right? Like if you're um, considering uh, a company a particular market, then you can, can you I use that? I guess you can look historically. I mean, that's how you're, you're benchmarking. You're right. looking at how something did relative to uh, the average of other companies. So I guess if you're thinking of making an investment in a fund, you can try to use this to some extent. How has it performed relative right. to others? Okay. And maybe individual companies. I'm not, I'm not sure whether hmm. you, you can use it for that. At a conference this summer, you noted that private equity is closing in on the high side of the market cycle and that it could become more difficult for PE funds to beat the stock market. What is your perspective six months later and what are the implications? So that's, there's a lot going on there. So I would say, first of all, there is a record amount of money that's been committed to private equity. And you can measure that as commitments to private equity funds as a fraction of the public stock market. Okay. And that right. number is, I think the last couple of years probably has not been higher in any one year except for 2008. So that's one. Two, those measures don't count co-investment, which we know mm -hmm. has gone up, mm -hmm. and it doesn't count things like sovereign wealth funds investing directly uh, and uh, other you know family mm -hmm. offices yes. which have, have become more interested in this. So I think there, there is a record amount of money looking at private equity. And historically, when there is that kind of money going into private equity, returns have been disappointing. Mm. So mm -hmm. that's true on an absolute basis. So when, when were other peaks? Other peaks were 1988. Other peaks were 1999 and 2000, and then 2007 and 2008. And in all those periods, the, the stock market actually didn't do so well the next five years. And uh, private equity relative to public markets didn't do so well either they didn't do terribly but they didn't do so well so what you worry about when you have this amount of money mm -hmm. going into private equity and, and perhaps a record is that it becomes harder to make attractive returns yeah. which yeah. you know is sort of common sense that there's a lot of money going so first of all for deals that are getting done you have higher prices and second of all on the margin you may do marginal deals that you wouldn't do if you didn't have to put the money to work mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so a lot of lot of dry powder out there that needs to be deployed. That is the challenge. Now, now the the if you want to make the the positive argument, which you can make, is expected returns are low on everything, mm -hmm. and so all you need in private equity <coughs> is to beat the public markets, and you're fine, even if the public markets don't do so great. It's just nothing's mm -hmm. going to do great, mm -hmm. and. Um, if you look, again, look historically, the last 20 years, so since 1996, there has not been one vintage 
where the the private equity firms or the 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 average private equity fund hasn't beaten the S and P five hundred. Hmm. So you know, if you want to yeah. make the positive argument, it's like, look, we've been in these periods before. Right. Even in those periods, we were about equal or a little bit better in the S and P five hundred. So if we get that again. You know, it's yeah. things are okay. But we're on a run now. The market, the stock market's on a huge run, and we're supposed to get a rate hike in the not too distant future. So you have to factor that in, right? That would be the worry. You know, yeah. On the other hand, these things are, are pretty hard to predict, <laughs> right? If, <laughs> right? If we could predict them, we should uh, right. you know, turn this off and go start ahead. Yes, fund. yes, right. Okay. Um, you've written that the prevailing notion that the majority of mergers are doomed or fail to add value is a false one. This is a, this is a notion that the, the business press tend to perpetuate. What is the best way to measure the value of a deal? So it's really hard because once the deal gets done, it's very hard to track. So there, there are a few ways that you can do this and that, that academics have tried to do it. So the first thing you do is just see how does the, the market react to the acquisition mm-hmm. you know, around the time of the mm-hmm. announcement. You can look at both the target and the bidder. And then you know, what you do is you track the bidder over the next three years. And there's you know, a lot of noise with how the bidder's business does. But if you, you know, get enough of them, you can see, okay, do bidders actually do better or worse than other companies in the same industry? Mm-hmm. And what, what you find there is that for, for targets, stock price always goes up, okay? So that's not a surprise. But on the bidder, it's, it's more complicated than people realize. Cash deals, on average, bidder stock goes up. And, and it goes up when it's announced, and it's also up three years down the road. And for stock deals, stock deals, the bidder stock usually goes down. Um, although less so recently, and then over time the bidder stock goes down a little, um, and that's a tricky thing to understand whether that's that's the merger or not because you've got a couple of things going mm-hmm. on. You're evaluating the merger, but you're also evaluating the fact that if the bidder is selling its stock, it's telling you it's overvalued. So there's right. there's some information not just about the merger, but about the the bidder itself. So if you just take the cash deals where there's no stock. You know, target goes up, bidder goes mm-hmm. up a little, it stays up over time. Those are winners on average. Interesting. And, and that is particularly true if you get rid of the mega deals. So get rid of the really big ones, yeah. take, which, which there are fewer of lately, and take ones where you're, you're buying, bigger companies buying something smaller. You know, the results are pretty positive there. And then on the stock deals, that's where historically the big stock deals, particularly the ones in the dot-com era, that's where you saw that's where you saw negatives. Yes. But you take those out and it gets a lot less negative. And then you know, if you take the target and the acquirer together, it's it's actually that's also positive. So the the average results I would say are basically positive once you throw out the big dot com mm-hmm. deals. And so what that means is, you know, you if you do an acquisition, you know, on average probably going to create value but there's a lot of variance so there are plenty of deals that don't there are plenty of deals that do but this view that they're they're all bad is just uh or that you know two-thirds are bad i think is just not not consistent with the data interesting so um 
have you formed an opinion about cryptocurrency and where it fits into the <laughs> banking system? I, I don't mean to throw a curveball at you, but we've been seeing so much just in the last week or so with Bitcoin and these outrageous valuations and like people that bought one share are now taking these really nice vacations. And what, what's your opinion and, and how is it going to fit into you know, banking, because we know the SEC is looking um, at how they're going to regulate this. Okay, so there, there are a lot of questions okay. there. So, so the first question is, is, is Bitcoin a real thing, yeah. or are the cryptocurrencies a real thing? And the answer to that, I think, is unequivocally yes. It's a new technology. It really is just decentralized verification. And there's a lot of value to having decentralized verification. And you need to have a value on the currency in order to give people the incentive to do the decentralized verification. So that's the people who are solving the problems and getting paid to solve the problem. So it's, it's a real innovation. It's, it's different. And I think over time, people will figure out applications for it, you know, tying contracts, okay. you know, keeping yes. track of contracts right. and information and getting it verified decentrally rather than having the government or, you know, some centralized authority doing it. So there's there's real value there and 20 years from now there will be cryptocurrencies. Now now the question is is Bitcoin worth, you know, 10,000? Is it worth 200? And, and that's a, a much harder thing to say. Is Bitcoin even going to be the winner? Because Ether has some characteristics yeah. that are actually better for the decentralized verification than, than Bitcoin hmm. does. And that is, you know, that, who knows? Um, I think it, uh, um, yeah, I'd just say who knows. My, my guess right now is that we'll look back five years from now and find 16000 to have been a high price. <laughs> okay. But but you 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 just you just don't yeah. know. I mean yeah. when it was at uh, at a thousand, yeah, mm-hmm. people said it was a high mm-hmm. price. And mm-hmm. I think it's uh, it's something where it's like it's a little bit like like gold. You know, what's gold worth? I mean, you know, it, it's it's useful for jewelry, but that's not, you know, the main reason people hold it they hold it because other people value it and that's the case here so that's why it's very hard to put a value on it other than it has some value and it's probably not sixteen thousand. or it won't be sixteen thousand five years from now but i i I would not bet a, a you know a ton of money on that okay Okay. Let's um, shift gears a little bit. Um, The University of Chicago's Booth School of Business recently received a sizable gift from an alumnus to focus on private equity programming. Can you talk a little more, can you talk specifically about how the funds are going to be used? Okay. Can I, I'm going to answer something, another question first. Okay. And then explain that. So the gift first was from Raymond Sveter who's a managing partner at BC Partners. He's been there for many years. Uh, he graduated from Booth in 1989 and uh, is a, you know, a, a, a terrific uh, person. So he decided to give us um, a very generous gift. Why did he decide to do that? Uh, he decided to do that because he saw what we're doing in private equity and why this is such a great place to do private equity. And what we do here is we've got a really nice mix of classroom courses and experiential courses and 
there's there's really not a better mix out there. And I think what what he saw was we were doing a great job and that his money could help us to continue to do a great job and to expand some of the things we do. So I'll tell you what we do okay. and then where the Perfect. money's going to go. Great. So the the classroom courses are we've got, you know, a bunch that are relevant for private equity. We've got course I teach, which is entrepreneurial finance and private equity. We've got a course called commercializing innovation, where people go very deeply into understanding operating models and business Mm -hmm. models and modeling the economics of that. Uh, We've got a course on private equity law. We've got a course on, uh, it's less of a finance course. It's more of a, a strategy and operations course on making acquisitions work. And then we've got a course on entrepreneurship through acquisition where you learn kind of from soup to nuts how to find a company to buy, how to buy it, and then what do you do once you've bought it. So um, those are very specific to private equity. And then we've got, you know, a bunch of finance and accounting courses, strategy, um, et cetera, that, you know, are, are useful for private equity, investment banking, lots of things. So we really have, if you want to learn stuff in the classroom, you can really learn it here. Mm -hmm. And when you get out of here, your ability to both do the the modeling and the kind of analytical stuff and being able to think about the big picture is very, very good. And there are other schools that do a good job on big picture and um, maybe not so much on the modeling. We do a really good job on both. So that's in the classroom. And then outside of the classroom, we've got a private equity and venture capital lab course, uh, which I think we were the first or among the first to have that. And it is, it is spectacularly successful. We have each year about 65 firms, and we run 110 students through this course. Wow. And what they do, and we get about 300 applicants, so it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's tough to get into. And what these students do is during the quarter, they actually intern for a private equity or venture capital firm. And that means spending about 15 hours a week in addition to their classes. This counts for a class, so it frees up a yeah. little bit of time. And then in the class, they're given some kind of various um, you know, lectures and materials that are relevant for their internship and it's taught by practitioners so we've split up there's a venture side and a PE side the venture side is taught by uh, a couple of uh, venture capitalists and the PE side uh, is taught by Chris McGowan who was a managing director at Madison Dearborn uh, before Mm -hmm. he came Mm -hmm. uh, to work for us and so that's really you know terrific because the students get a real experience, and about two-thirds of them did not have experience before. And so what happens in private equity, most of the, the people who hire in private equity and venture hire people who've had previous experience. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've had, so there's a chicken and egg problem. Yeah, so if you don't right. have previous experience, how do you get into it? And so what's, what's really terrific about this is we give a lot of people some experience. And then, you know, some fraction of them, I think Chris, what do you say, about quarter, um, end up doing private equity or venture at some point, you know, in the next few years. So, so it really, really, 
it really helps, particularly, you know, I guess if you had experience, yeah. you get you get another look because you get a look at a different yeah. firm. And then if you didn't have experience, you you get that experience. Are and they, so, it sounds like they're predominantly working for Chicago it's all, firms. It's all it Chicago right now. Yeah, yeah I, I, we may experiment with, you know, particularly, you know, Silicon Valley, you mm -hmm. know, Bay Area stuff, but for this at this point it's it's largely yeah. chicago firms and we have the luxury that there's a lot of there are a lot yeah, of right, right. You, you can do it in chicago right. you can do it in new york you can probably do it and you can do it in the bay area those are probably the only right. three places right. where you'd have the critical mass to be able to do it that's great so that's terrific and then so that's one then we developed something called the uh, sterling part Investment Thesis Challenge, which is SPITC. I'm not sure that's the with Sterling best name. Partners with here. Sterling Partners okay. here, but the the genesis of that is, um, you know, I was talking to some of my private equity friends, and I was saying, oh, all my students want to do private equity, and they said, yeah, everybody wants to do private equity. You get all these resumes. He <laughs> said, and and he said, what would be really useful is if they gave me an investment idea. Because then we'd have something yeah. to talk about. If they right. just give me their resume and say I'm a great person, you know, mm -hmm. everybody, you know, everybody mm -hmm. can say. It. But if you tell me, hey, I've got this great investment idea, and I can evaluate it, well, then, then I can like, you know, there's some meat. So what we we do, and this has been sponsored by Sterling Partners and Rick Elfman uh, in particular, who uh, was a founding partner there, is the students. Um, put together teams and you know teams of three to five people and they come up with an investment idea and so and the idea will be you know generally be I want to invest in this particular space or this particular industry and here are some of the companies we would think about investing in and so they basically come up with um, you know a plan or investment thesis right. plan and we then bring that to private equity firms in Chicago um, who look at the, the ideas and then sign up whether they want to sponsor it. And so uh, we've got 12 firms who, who will work with you know, one or more teams. And then what the students do is they, they go and do the investment research. They get, they get some budget okay. to do it. And uh, they research the industry and they research you know companies within the industry and then they they report um to you know chris mcgowan also is the the person who um manages this for us and then they also you know report to their private equity host firm uh every week or two here's what we found here's what we're mm -hmm. doing and then at the end they they make a presentation now now what happens is if the the firm likes it. They actually um, give the students an exclusivity bonus, and oh. and it's not a big amount, but it's like it says we're we we may pursue this. So these and students are effectively independent sponsors. That that's a yeah. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I, sort I, of. No, they right? no right? potentially yes, yeah. but they are potentially independent sponsors, and uh, that's been uh, that's also been. I think a very good experience yeah, for sure. a number of them, and again, it gives them it gives them experience doing what they would be doing right. if they were doing private equity. Right. Uh, if they're interviewing for jobs, it gives them something to to talk about, and um, 
it's and it gives them exposure to the, the pea firm. So that's cool. so that's a terrific thing. And the third thing that we do that's um, you know a little different kind of fun is we team up with Oxford, um, where I have a co-author and we have uh, some friends to do a, a private equity challenge. And oh, and what we okay. do there is in the fall we get students again into teams and this is more first years than than second years spitzy is is both mm -hmm. first years and second years probably more second years um and the private equity lab is both it's about 50 50. so the oxford challenge what we do is you know we get you know teams and this year you know basically i think there were 80 students and, and 16 teams and we give them uh, a bunch of public companies to look at and this year it was over 250 and then their job was to pick one of those 250 and propose a, a public to private transaction. Oh, wow. And so they then, oh. they then put together yeah. a deck. Here's, here's, what, here's our investment thesis. Mm -hmm. Here's what we do. Here's you know, uh, how we do it. And what they then do is they present to uh, a group of private equity investors. So we bring in four or five PE investors and the students present, and then you know there were two or three rounds. Where first round we went it down from sixteen to four, I think, and then there was a, a finals, and then you know we take the best team out of those sixteen, and then this year they will go to Oxford and face off against Oxford's best team. Okay. And they do that in conjunction with Oxford's private equity conference. And then last year and next year, they, the Oxford people come here, and then they do it, you know, around our private equity hmm. conference. And so again, you get you know a decent group of students and the serious students who are, um, you know, getting some experience in putting together a deal deck and then presenting to private equity firms. And those students tend to do pretty well on the private equity job So market. what happens with that company? Is that just a hypothetical in that case? So, or do they so these are hypotheticals. Okay. I mean, I can tell you two years ago, I looked at one of the companies and I said, gee, that company looks undervalued. And I bought it and it, it did very, it did very oh, well. Oh, wow. Um, okay. <laughs> so, but they're, they're, yeah, they they're, all, they're, they're, they're all, they're all, they're all hypothetical. That's awesome. Um, can you tell me a little bit about um, some new research that you may be working on or some new projects coming down the pike? So let's see. So I can tell you two papers that I are in, are in different stages but okay. are, are, I think, interesting. So uh, the first one is related to what we talked about earlier, about whether you can time private equity and venture capital markets. So, and the idea there is knowing what you knew at the time about the relation between fundraising and performance, could you adjust your portfolio in a way where you would improve your returns? Mm -hmm. And so that's, um, that's in progress. Okay. And uh, I think th the answer to that is you can time somewhat, probably a little bit more in venture than PE, uh, but you can't time too much i think is is what we're probably mm -hmm. going to find but i you know that is that is in progress okay and then the other thing that i've been working on for a while and and need to um you know there there's a lot more to do there 
is I have a, a wonderful data set of assessments of CEOs, CFOs, C-level people, mm-hmm. uh, which comes from GH Smart, which is a, a firm that assesses C-level candidates, and, and a lot of their work is for private equity firms. And they they rate these candidates on like 30 different dimensions. Okay. Like, you know, are they... Um, do they get things done? <laughs> Are they good listeners? Do they hire good people? Are they analytical, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera? And what you can do with that is you can figure out from among these candidates who's going to become a CEO. So I can tell you, here, here are the oh, candidates wow. for CEO. Who gets hired? Well, actually, first of all, I can tell you who becomes a candidate for CEO because I've got like 3,000 people, all different kinds of yeah. people. I can tell you. Yeah. Among these people, who's more likely to become a CEO? Then, once I tell you, actually, first I'm going to tell you who's going to become a CEO candidate. Then I can tell you once he or she is a candidate, who's going to get hired. And then, once they're hired, I can tell you who's more likely to be successful. That's and so that is, that is, that is, <laughs> it's not perfect, but it, it, it is, yeah. it is, you can really improve if you, you pay attention to these things, you can improve your success rate. And I think over time, you've seen more and more PE firms use assessment firms like a GH Smart huh. because they've been, I think, historically very good at understanding the industry dynamics, the business yeah. stuff not so good at picking people. And I think over time, you know, you can use analytics to get better. It's, right. you'll never be perfect. Right. It's, it's right. obviously on both, both the business and the people, mm-hmm. like you get things wrong all the time, but you can get better. And, and what my research says is, yeah, if you look at the right things, you can absolutely get better. That's very interesting. Yeah. Well, finally, I want to ask you, and this is uh, not necessarily have anything to do with um, private equity. What are you um, reading right now? What's on your nightstand? So I just finished reading uh, Ron Chernow's biography of Ulysses S. Grant. Oh, okay. And that was fascinating. Uh, It's actually funny because he's a great general, but he actually had some useful management lessons and he had this one quote, okay. which, was, which was so true, and it's also actually consistent with the research I talked to about mm-hmm. who's a successful mm-hmm. CEO. And he goes, in war, and I would say also in business, anything is better than indecision. He said, if I am wrong, we shall soon find it out and can do the other thing, but not to decide wastes both time and money and may ruin everything. That's what wow. he was. That's why no he. No analysis that, that, paralysis that's, for him. No, no. He was always let's go into battle, let's test and probe, and then let's figure it right. out. And right. that is that is what I find so in true. my research. So so that was fascinating. It's it's just fascinating to read about him. Um, I just read a brief history of everyone who ever lived, which is uh, by a guy named Rutherford, which is about how D- <laughs> what we know about DNA and what DNA hmm. tells us about the history of, of humanity, and that's fascinating. That sounds interesting. Um, what else hit Refresh by Satya Nadella was interesting. He was a former student. Wow. So it was always, it's always fun to read that. And uh, what else? I read a biography of uh, Dwight Eisenhower, who a lot of people don't read, and he was unbelievably impressive as, as a general and as president. Wow. So there you go. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure interviewing you, Professor Steve Kaplan with University of Chicago Booth. Well, thank you very much. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. Subscribe to the show in the iTunes store where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate us and leave a review to help other listeners find out about the podcast. After you've rated the show, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and trends in middle market M&A.